Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm part of the team here, and it is great to have you with us today as we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts. Acts, you might know, is the story of what happened next after Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven. And today we come to chapter 3. Now, to begin, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever received something that you weren't expecting? Have you ever received something that you weren't expecting? Maybe it was a gift, maybe a handwritten letter, maybe some money. Now, I recently received a a couple of gifts that I wasn't expecting. I had a, a member of our church, they gave me a beautiful handmade blanket, which is perfect just in time for winter. It was a lovely, thoughtful gift. I also had another member of the church make for me a beautiful handmade lead light cross. In fact, it's so beautiful, I wanna show you a picture of it on the screen there. You can see that they've mounted it in a piece of timber from their property, it's just beautiful. When we receive something we weren't expecting, it can be memorable, it's meaningful, it can be encouraging and exciting. Of course, it's not always that way. Maybe you get a speeding ticket in the mail that you weren't expecting or a little critter in the ceiling of your home that that you didn't want there. But generally speaking, there are these times in life when we receive these things we're not expecting and it's memorable, encouraging and exciting. Well, today in this passage in Acts chapter 3, we meet a man who receives something he was not expecting. He receives more than he even dreamed possible. This man was unable to walk. We're told that he had been lame from birth and he began the day just hoping for some money. But he went home that day, not only with the ability to walk, but with the gift of salvation and relationship with God. He received what he was not expecting. Now, you've come down to church today, which is wonderful, but maybe you've come here and you're not expecting very much. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time and you're just expecting a little bit more of the same. Sing a few songs, hear a sermon, have a chat with someone and then go home. Or maybe you're not a Christian, uh, but you're intrigued by Jesus. Someone's invited you along to church, but you're not really expecting too much in your life to change as a result of being here. Or maybe you've been dragged to church this morning by a family member, by a friend, a wife, a husband, whatever it might be, and you're just wanting to go home. However it is, you might have walked in here this morning. I think this story shows us that when we meet the real Jesus, we receive far more than what we're expecting. We receive far more than we might have even dreamed possible. We receive everything we need both now and forever. And so rather than me uh, set up the story a little bit more, I thought it would be best if we just dive into the details of this magnificent story. And I think as we look at it, we see very clearly that it breaks down into two main scenes. You've got number one, the amazing miracle in verses one to 10. And then you've got the audacious message in verses 11 to 26. So let's begin by looking at the amazing miracle. Now, as the story begins, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. 
And Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples and now his apostles, they're on the way to the temple uh, to pray. Now, the temple was the place of worship for God's people. It was formerly the place of God's presence among his people. And the temple was the most significant site in Jerusalem and in Judaism. You can see from the drawing on the screen how the temple just dominated the landscape of Jerusalem. The temple complex, you can see it up there, just dominates the landscape of Jerusalem. But what's significant about this story is that it focuses not on what happens within the temple, but on an individual outside the temple. Look with me at verse 2 there of chapter 3. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now scholars suggest that this gate called Beautiful, that it was 75 feet high, and it had two huge double doors which were made of Corinthian brass. Now, I don't have much Corinthian brass in my home, so I have no idea what it looks like, but apparently it must have been fancy. Now, this gate was a picture of splendor and strength. And yet, ironically, at the base of this gate was a man. Not a strong or a significant man, but a frail and a forgotten man. We're told from, in chapter 4 that this man was about 40 years old. And we're told here that he was lame from birth. He'd never taken a step in his life. He'd never stood on his own two feet. Presumably, he'd never held a job. He'd spent his entire life begging at this gate. You know, I used to spend a lot of time in the city, in the CBD. I did my degree at QUT Gardens Point, and then after I graduated, I got a job in an office on Eagle Street. And so I would, every single day, walk the path from Central Station to QUT Gardens Point and then from Central Station to Eagle Street. And every day as I walked that route, I would see the same people in the same spot. They were either busking or asking for money or selling the big issue. This is kind of the experience for this man. Every day he comes to beg at this gate. This is all that he's known his whole life. And he's really expecting today to be like any other day. He's just hoping for some loose change. But he's about to receive what he was not expecting. Look at verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. Now put yourself in the position of this man for a moment. He has been begging at this gate for years and years and years, and he's probably very used to people avoiding eye contact with him. Maybe you've done this yourself. You've seen someone up ahead and you can see that they're begging. You know that they're going to ask you for money. You know that they're going to ask you for help. And so you pretend to look the other way when you walk past or you look at your phone. This is not what Peter and John do. They look straight at this man and they say to him, look at us. They ask him to lift his head, to look them in the eye. They treat him with dignity. They, they treat him as an equal. Verse five, so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. 
Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. I don't have any money. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now I imagine the first half of Peter's reply to this man was disappointing. Silver or gold, I do not have. Really? Then why'd you stop? Why'd you ask me to look at you? You're just messing with me? I imagine the second half of Peter's reply then was downright shocking. Even rude, to put it lightly. Walk? You're asking me to do the one thing that I cannot do. The one thing I have longed to do my whole life. I imagine the man might have been just about to get angry at Peter and John. And yet before he replies, Peter reaches out his hand. Verse seven, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. What an amazing moment. Now remember that Luke, the author of Acts, was a doctor. He was a physician. And he seems interested in the physiology of this miracle. The strength that returns to this man's feet and to this man's ankles. He begins to walk. He begins to jump. He begins to praise God. And he goes with Peter and John into the temple. And you can imagine that this causes quite a stir. Look at verse 9. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I mean, they've seen this man sitting and begging for years. And here he is up and about walking and jumping and praising God. Now, either this really did happen or this was a ridiculously elaborate hoax. He's pretended to be lame and he sat at the, the temple gate for 30 plus years. I think it seems more likely that it really did happen, that he was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which is what Peter will go on to say as he gets up to explain to the gathering crowd all about this miracle. Now, before we look at Peter's message I want to take just a moment to touch on healing. Because I think this story raises for us an important question. Does God still heal today? Does God still heal like this? Now, I know that this is more than a theoretical question for many of us. Many of us are facing hard and heartbreaking situations and we long for God to fix, to restore, to heal. So what should we expect? What should we do? Well, outside of the Gospels, the, the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry and, and the book of Acts, the New Testament doesn't actually have that much to say about healing. In fact, there are 79 references to healing in the New Testament. 70 of them are found in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. This is what it looks like in graph form. You can see I'm just a, a wonderful graph maker. You've got the books of the New Testament along the bottom there and then the instances of healing in the book. And you can see there you've got the four Gospels and the book of Acts. 70 of the 79 references. 
Now, the healing miracles are clustered around the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts because like we said last week, the miracles authenticated their ministry. The miracles proved that their message and their ministry was from God. And this is why we find almost nothing in the rest of the New Testament about healing. Now, I say almost nothing because there are still a few references to healing in a few places. For example, 1 Corinthians 12 refers to the gift of healing. James 5 says this, says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, verse 14. And then it says in verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so obviously we can and we should pray for healing. Obviously God can and does continue to heal. If I was to put it simply, I would put it this way. Healing is possible in this life, so pray. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit at work in you and I. The ministry of Jesus has not ended with his return to heaven, but it's continuing to this day. This is what we're learning in the book of Acts. And I know that some of us would testify to having been healed by God. We can and we should pray for healing. And yet I know that many of others of us would say, I have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for healing. And yet God has not answered that prayer. See, this means healing, it's not never, but it's also not always. Again, if I was to put it simply, I would say healing is possible in this life, so pray, but healing is not assured in this life, so trust. You know, there are countless examples in Scripture that this is true. There are so many of God's saints that were not healed. Take the Apostle Paul, for example. We read in 2 Corinthians 12 that he had a thorn in the flesh, this unknown affliction that he was never healed from. Now, some people say, if you want to be healed, well, you just got to have stronger faith. I think the Apostle Paul had pretty strong faith in Jesus. He wrote half the Bible. He healed people. And yet he was never himself healed of this affliction. God in his providence said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Another example is Timothy, one of Paul's protégés and a church leader. Timothy, we know, had stomach problems and frequent illnesses. And we're not given any indication that he was ever healed. In fact, when Paul writes to Timothy, he doesn't say to him, well, I'm going to pray for you to be healed. Or or when I visit you next, I'll pray for your healing. Instead, Paul says to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 5, he says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Well, if you insist, Dr. Paul... Now, make no mistake, God will answer our prayers for healing. But the timing belongs to him. Sometimes we get the answer now. Often, we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait until Jesus returns. When the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. 
when death and pain and sickness will be no more, when every tear will be wiped away. So anytime we do witness or receive healing in this life, it's kind of like a glimpse into that day in the future when the whole world will be healed and whole and restored. And so if I had to summarize, I would say this, healing is possible in this life, so pray. Healing is not assured in this life, so trust. Healing is promised in the next life, so hold on. You know, many of you would have uh, heard the story of Joni Erickson Tata, paralyzed at the age of 17 in a, a diving accident. Now, she longed to be healed like this lame man in Acts 3. She cried out to God. She attended rallies and events and so forth. But nothing ever happened for her. She says she eventually got to the point after studying the scriptures where she found what she calls a deeper healing in Christ. This is what she writes. She says, does God miraculously heal? Sure, he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. And then she says, Oh, bless this stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. Healing is possible, so pray. Healing is not assured, so trust. And healing is promised, so hold on. And for this lame man by the gate at the temple, the future has come upon him in the present. The healing of Jesus, which will one day flood this universe, it is flooded into his feet and his ankles. And he begins to walk and leap and jump and praise God. He goes into the temple with Peter and John and this causes quite a scene. And it leads Peter to stand up and to explain what has happened. And this leads us to the second scene of this story. We've looked at the amazing miracle and now we see Peter's audacious message. Now spend a fair bit of time talking about the miracle so we'll move through Peter's message fairly quickly. But I think there are three main observations we can make about this sermon that Peter gives. The first is this, the message is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. Now imagine you're Peter and John, you've just miraculously healed this man, you've gone into the temple, a crowd of people is gathering around, around you, they're amazed at what's happened, they're wondering what's happened. What are you going to say to them? Now you might be tempted to talk about yourself. Well, yes, it's true, we, we did heal this man. We have a book coming out soon. <laughs> Listen to our podcast. Like, share, subscribe on social media. Oh, and we're going to take up an offering today as well. They could have talked about this man. He said, brother, you've received an amazing healing. Why don't you tell us what that was like for you? Why don't you share with us a little bit of your journey? That's not what they do. They don't talk about themselves. They don't talk about this man. They, in fact, do the opposite. They deflect all attention away from themselves and they direct all attention to Jesus. 
Look at verse 12. When Peter saw this, the crowd gathering around them, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? Wasn't us. We didn't do it. Verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. This man was not healed by Peter and John. Not because they're so wonderful and they're so powerful. This man was healed by the risen and reigning Jesus. And this means this healing is not a magic trick to gain people's attention. This healing tells us something important about Jesus about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. It points us to his identity, that he is the promised savior of the Old Testament. This is why Peter refers to the Old Testament so much in the sermon. He refers to the promises made through Moses, through Samuel, through Abraham. He talks about what God foretold through the prophets, that this promised Messiah is coming and this is how you will know who he is. An example of this is in Isaiah 35, which was written thousands of years earlier about the coming of God's Savior. Look at what we read in Isaiah 35, verse 4. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now, how will you know the time is here? How will you know that God has arrived? Look at verse 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And the mute tongue shout for joy. It's written thousands of years before the arrival of Jesus. And it points us to Jesus' identity. The promised saviour come from God. And this is why when Peter stands up to talk about the healing, he doesn't talk about themselves. He doesn't talk about the man. He talks about Jesus. This healing, this sermon, it's all about Jesus. But having set the crowd straight on who did this healing, having told them all about Jesus, Peter has to raise something a little bit awkward with them. He says to them, do you remember what you did to this Jesus? Look at verse 13. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. Remember Barabbas. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And this leads us to the second thing about this sermon. Firstly, it's all about Jesus. Secondly, it's honest about us. I mean, Peter lays out the truth here very honestly, very starkly. He says to the crowd and the religious leaders, many whom would have been present for Jesus' crucifixion, many of whom would have been in the crowd shouting out, crucify him. And he says to them, you did it. You crucified him. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him. You killed the author of life. I don't think Peter has read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Now you might be thinking, Adam, I agree this sermon is honest about them. But how can it be honest about us? I wasn't there. I didn't do it. I didn't yell out, crucify him. 
See, we may not have been there. We may not have been the ones to hammer in the nails, but the nails were hammered in for us. Isaiah 53, another prophecy about Jesus, says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. John Stott says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. And this leads us to the final part of the sermon. It's all about Jesus. It's honest about us and it's an invitation to us. I mean, Peter's not interested in making everyone feel bad. Peter's not interested in just condemning everyone. How could he be? The very thing that Peter accuses them of doing, it was the very same thing that Peter himself had done. He says to them, you disowned the holy and righteous one. Peter did this exact same thing three times on the night of Jesus' arrest. But Peter has experienced the forgiveness of God. He has experienced the restoration of Jesus. He has had his sins wiped away. He has received the refreshing love of God. And he invites his hearers and he invites you and me to receive the same. Verse 19, he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This is the invitation to you from God today, to repent and to have your sins wiped out. Now to repent sounds like a big scary word, but it very simply means to turn, to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus in faith, to own your share in the guilt of Jesus' death so that you may share in the grace of Jesus' victory. And so we began today by talking about those things we receive, those times we receive something when we weren't expecting it. What do you most naturally expect to receive from God? A disappointed frown, a cold shoulder, a harsh judgment, what about this? What about the free gift of forgiveness? You know, most of us carry around heavy loads of guilt. Might be the case for you. You may not have told anyone what you've done, but you remember what you've done. You carry the guilt of your actions. Today, the invitation from God is to have your sins wiped out. Not partially, but fully. Not temporarily, but forever. Because this is why Christ came and this is what Christ has done for us. You know, the great offer of this chapter, it's not a perfect body. The great offer of this chapter is a perfect record before God. Now, there is a day coming when God will heal our bodies finally and fully, when he will restore everything, 
all our tears will be wiped away. But until that day, the invitation from God is to have your sins wiped away, to be clean. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What about you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great offer and for your great grace in Jesus. We thank you that we can have our sins wiped away, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And there are those of us here today or listening right now, and we want to respond to this offer for the first time to turn from ourselves, to turn from our sin and to receive the free gift of forgiveness and new life in Jesus. And there are others of us here today, Lord, and we need to turn anew to you so that we may receive times of refreshing so that we may once again be filled with your love led by your spirit, grounded on your word for your glory. So wherever we might be this morning, I pray and I ask that you by your Holy Spirit would do a work in and among us, that there might be cleansing and wiping away and forgiveness and restoration and renewal and that you might do new things in our lives and in our church. Lord, we are so grateful, we are so thankful for who you are and what you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to pray further with someone, talk with someone further, then we have our prayer corner that's available just over there after the service and we would love to do that with you. But right now, let me invite you to stand for this closing blessing before we sing together. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will do it. Amen.